history may judge us quite harshly for how we treat animals on, on factory farms. And one easy step makes a huge difference. If you just do not eat chickens, you win almost all of our support for the horrors of factory farms. It's hard to believe, but the math is really simple. Not eating chickens cuts out almost all the cruelty from our diets, no matter what you eat instead. So please take this one step of replacing chickens on your plate. Visit OneStepMatters.com to learn how easy it is to get on the right side of history. Oh, wow. Back in the money. Yeah. All right. We're making podcasts great again. Oh, my God. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joining me today, we have Sarah Cliff, we have Tara Golshan, and uh, we do not have Dara, who is in Australia. It's really upsetting and this in, week. In a typical sort of case, immigration got hot. When she when she left town, so a, a couple of weeks ago, I guess the Trump administration had rolled out new initiatives that were going to be separating children from their parents when they arrived at the border uh, without permission, asylum seekers, and there was this chilling quote from Chief of Staff John Kelly where he says, "The children will be taken care of, put into foster care, or whatever." Um, and you know, as a parent, I mean, as a human being, but like really as a parent, this it just like it sickened me. And then over the weekend, there was this story kind of flying around on the internet about how the government had lost uh, fifteen hundred uh, immigrant children who had been uh, in in federal care. And I, and I think not alone among liberals. <laughs> Sort of got confused and mixed these two stories up and did some did some fake news tweets and I think uh, retweeted some photos from 2014 detention centers. These are both things that have happened, right? Like like it's it's not fake news in the sense that like one of these stories is made up, but they're actually separate issues here that I think many. Trump critics, myself included, were somewhat confusing together. And uh, Dara, I'm sure, would have just run over and punched me if she had been <laughs> in the office, uh, but she wasn't. She she dashed off a few tweets from a far-off time zone and, and left the rest of us to, to figure it out. Yeah. But so Sarah has stepped into the breach. Yes, I put on my to best. Do, to um... do the journalism, <laughs> the reporting. I put on my best Daryl Lind hat to figure out what was going on here. And I think there actually – so I think there actually is like a bit of like a fake news element to what happened. So I think the two things that got scrambled up a little bit are this policy of separating parents from kids at the border if they're apprehended between checkpoints. And then also this testimony from April where a Trump administration official – noted that they had been unable to reach these uh, 1,475 minors who are in custody of some kind of guardian and awaiting a deportation hearing. So these two things are separate. They, I, I, don't, I still have not been able to figure out how they got totally squished together on the internet, but I, I want to walk through them both because I spent a lot of time at the beginning of this week talking to immigrant advocates, and they see these things really, really differently. So these so-called missing children, when I'd ask immigration advocates, are these children missing? Because I am not an expert in this and I came to them with my dumb questions. They would say, no, you know, these kids are not missing. What's going on here is there was testimony in front of a Senate committee on April 28th, where um, the person who runs the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is responsible for unaccompanied minors in the United States who are awaiting deportation hearings, he testified before Congress, and he said that they had been unable to reach 1,475 kids who are currently with some kind of guardian awaiting deportation hearings. But so what, what are and these me, unaccompanied minors? Yeah, yeah, so these unaccompanied minors are mostly kids who try to cross into the country by themselves sometime in the past few years. They were apprehended by a border authority likely put in some kind of juvenile detention center for at least some period of time. But the government has a mandate to move these children to the least restrictive setting of care. So, And usually that is not a juvenile detention facility. Usually that is living with a parent or a close relative, someone who's in the United States who can take care of them. Sometimes these deportation 
proceedings can take years and it you know doesn't make sense for definitely from a child welfare you know perspective to have kids in these facilities for years from a economic perspective the costs of paying to have these kids it just doesn't make much sense to keep these kids housed in some kind of government facility so what the government tries to do and what it's usually successful in doing is releasing these kids to some kind of guardian who can take care of them for that time that they're waiting and what this figure refers to is in September 2014, the government decided to start checking in on these kids a little bit just to check, are they with the person that they said they were going to? If you remember, September 2014 is like right around, we're having this wave of unaccompanied minors coming into the country. Uh, it's like creating a crisis situation. And Donald Trump was not president. Donald Trump was not president. Um, president Obama was president in 2014. So they decided in September 2014, we're going to start making a phone call. 30 days after a kid gets placed with a guardian, we are going to call that person, just call them once um, and see what's up. And that's essentially what we're talking about with the so-called missing children. The government made 7,000 phone calls or so between November 2017 and December 2017. About 6,000 cases, the Guardian picked up the phone and they talked to them. In about in 1,475 cases, the Guardian did not pick up the phone. And so, you know, if I called Matt and like Matt did not pick up his phone, I would not be like, holy shit, Matt is missing and we'll never do the weeds again. I don't know what happened to him. I would say, oh, like Matt didn't pick up his phone. And that is how I would interpret it. And that's what we're talking about here. And like when I talk to these immigration advocates, you know, and, and ask them, you know, why don't people pick up their phone? I think there's some of the things that – you know, some of us come to mind for us first, like, oh, they're worried about the Trump administration. It's a hostile environment and they don't want to talk to someone who's somewhat involved in immigration services. So all of that's the case. But a lot of it's really boring and logistical. Like I was talking to some attorneys who often work with these populations who say they often rely on a pay-as-you-go phone. And sometimes the phone just runs out of money and you can't reach them. And then they switch to a new phone number in a few weeks. It's just, you know, a population that is sometimes hard to reach for boring logistical reasons. So that's what's up with the missing kids. And I think like the key thing to take away from all of this, when you talk to immigration advocates, they don't feel like these kids are missing. They feel like, you know, these kids are probably in a decent situation. They're actually like a little wary of the idea of even more government surveillance of this particular population. What they're really worried about is this separation policy that rolled out a few right. weeks but so ago. But like it is possible that some number of children are missing. Yes. But that number is not 1,500. Right. So there were a few dozen people they reached in those 7,000 phone calls who said the kid they were in charge of had run away. Right. Those kids like, yeah, maybe we want to say they are missing. But, you know, that's even a little bit up for debate. But it's a, this is a consequence of an effort to deal with the unaccompanied minors in a relatively humane way. Yes, say, right? but, but I mean, also like this is because they didn't keep a bunch of 14, 15, 16-year-olds in prison indefinitely, right? Like they are out with families. They check in on them occasionally. The check-in is imperfect. And, you know, do we even like want the government to like – triple surveillance of this population, despite, like, Kelly's dismissive foster care or whatever remark, like, the fact that 1,500 of them did not pick up the phone when they tried to contact them reflects an effort to, like, not be caging everyone who was apprehended. Right, because – and the sponsors don't have to have legal immigration mm -hmm. status. And so – that I think that plays into why immigration advocates are weary of more government surveillance on this because in putting these kids in sponsored families or foster care or whatever, they don't check the legal immigration status of those sponsors. Although that's one thing that seems to be – there is some kind of memorandum that came out a few weeks ago and I wish Dara was here to talk about it. But that is giving the government some authority for new sponsors to look into their immigration status. Mm -hmm. Right now the thing that's kept this a bit separate is that unaccompanied minors, their process through the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is part of Health and Human Services, which is totally separate from – immigration services from the Department of Homeland Security. Now they're doing some of that processing in conjunction with the Department for Homeland Security. So there is actually like a worry about 
this option, you know, this option of sending kids to sure. these sponsors becoming more limited if they move away from that policy that Tara's talking about towards one where they do check immigration status. Okay. Um, but so, so the missing kids, not, not really, really missing, missing, not considered a crisis by yes, advocates, the, um, where, not really yes. about Donald Trump, no. whereas the family separation. Yeah. So the family separation thing, like that's the real thing that is keeping immigration advocates really worried and really nervous about what this year is going to look like. So a few weeks ago, there was a press conference where Attorney General Jeff Sessions said they're essentially going to have a zero tolerance policy on um, those without documents crossing into the border who are apprehended, you know, not a specific checkpoint. And one of the ways they are going to implement that zero tolerance policy is by prosecuting all of these um, border crossers, handing them over to a U.S. marshal for some kind of criminal proceeding. That can often take a while. It can be a long, delayed process. And one of the kind of things that would hold that up is that there are limits on how long a family can be held in custody. Under the Obama administration, it was set at 20 days. So essentially, the Trump administration comes up with a workaround to say, oh, well, you know, they're not a family anymore. We're going to take the kids into custody as unaccompanied minored, minors, and then we can essentially hold on to the parents as long as we like as we process them. So what is happening right now is that parents and kids who cross the border together are being separated um, if they're apprehended. The parents go into the custody of the U.S. Marshal for criminal proceedings. The children go into the custody of the Office of Refugee and Resettlement, and they essentially become an unaccompanied minor. They become part of that population that um, we were just talking about earlier, the population that goes into some kind of juvenile detention facility. But the goal is to ultimately release them to a parent or a relative you know, that becomes harder when the parent has just been put into custody of the U.S. Marshal. It becomes harder to find someone who's going to take on that kid. And so we know that policy started May 7th. By May 22nd, there had been, um, I believe it's 638 adults apprehended at the border, and they were with 658 children who they've since been separated with. So that's over 600 kids who are being Put at this point, early enough, probably in some kind of detention facility, holding place, will eventually likely be released into the custody of a guardian. But that's the thing for a lot of reasons that, um, you know, for, I mean, just for the welfare of the kids, for the families, it becomes really, really hard to stay in touch when the government is separating you into two situations being run by two totally separate federal agencies. And there's all sorts of hurdles that just come up, like one, you know, immigration advocates raised to me was that it becomes a lot harder to defend an unaccompanied minor in their deportation hearings. Like you think of a five-year-old who's separated from their parent, they probably don't have their birth certificate. They probably don't have like documentation. They certainly don't know like their own case for asylum in a way that their parents would know the case for asylum. So when I was talking to some folks who represent these unaccompanied minors, they say it just becomes so much harder to represent a kid when you're not in touch with their parent because like, they just very understandably do not know the backstory to why they're in the United States in the first place. And I think it's important to note that this policy from the Trump administration was born out of this belief that they have that, I mean, there are more families coming in seeking asylum, which is legal. You're allowed to come in and seek asylum. But there's this belief in the Trump administration that they're not real families, that people are fraudulently like grabbing children and bringing them across the border and saying, hey, we're a family, so treat us more gently. And so this zero tolerance policy is basically saying, like, we're going to weed out who's faking this. The actual numbers of how prevalent this kind of fraud is is more murky. So like that's where this has all come out of. And obviously there are a lot more complications to that kind of directive. Okay, let's take a break and then let's talk about some of that larger background to this. Today is National Gun Violence Awareness Day and the start of Wear Orange Weekend, and people around the country are coming together with a simple message. There's more we can do to end gun violence. Uh, so every year, every town for gun safety and a coalition of partners call on Americans to wear orange to honor the more than 90 lives cut short by gun violence every day and to demand action toward a future free from gun violence. Join the movement by wearing orange today and post your pictures online using the hashtag wear orange to show you're committed to ending gun violence. 
it's the year 2018. Uh, so if you are doing something, almost anything in life, like you are going to want a website. And there is no better way to make a website than with Squarespace. I started making websites for myself 15 years ago or more, and it was a nightmare back then. And now it is incredibly easy with Squarespace. They have amazing templates, amazing customization. You can get something that looks incredibly original. You don't need any real technical skills to make it happen. You can turn a cool idea into a new website. You can showcase your work. You can do a blog. You can publish content. Uh, you can host a podcast. You can do photo portfolios. You can sell products and services of all kinds, promote a physical or an online business. It's amazing to me like how many businesses in my neighborhood still have either no website or, or like a really bad one. With Squarespace, it would be really easy, really simple to create a great one. They've got beautiful templates created by world-class designers. So you're going to get something that's customized but looks professional. They have powerful e-commerce functionality so you can sell anything online. They handle all that stuff. Customize your look and feel. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. I got a new way to buy domains, choose from over 200 extensions, analytics that help you grow in real time, built-in search engine optimization, free and secure hosting, and they've got 24-7 award-winning customer support if you ever have any kind of problems. Uh, so we're encouraging folks to make it yourself easily, create a website by yourself. Here's what you need to know. If you go to squarespace.com slash weeds, you can get a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code weeds and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Make it with Squarespace. So, I mean, I think as, as Tara was, was starting to allude to, right, there's like a big philosophical divide as to like what is happening here, right? And one viewpoint is that families who are showing up at the border without permission requesting asylum in the United States are actual families who have plausible asylum claims that the United States has a legal obligation, both under U.S. and international law, to take seriously, and that to come to the United States seeking refuge is like a legitimate thing that one should be doing, and therefore people are entitled to humane treatment that you would give to an asylum seeker, recognizing that, of course, in any large population, not every claim will be legitimate, but, but that there should be a presumption that these are like real families with real asylum claims. Conversely, I mean, if you see like the Department of Homeland Security tweeted yesterday, if you commit a crime in the United States, you're going to be prosecuted and you're going to end up separated from your family. We're not going to create special privileges for illegal aliens. Right. right. So it's like their view is that like, no, that like this is bogus, that there is no legitimate asylum claim, that people are just coming up from Central America attempting to immigrate illegally into the United States. They want humane treatment at the border so that they can sneak away and like infiltrate into American society and that these are criminals who need to be treated with harsh sanctions in order to deter other people from coming. Right. And that messaging is is really clear. So, I mean, there was this very, I think, this viral uh, exchange between Senator Kamala Harris and the DHS secretary, Kristen Nielsen, where the DHS, the message is clearly like these, this is a criminal prosecution. They are breaking U.S. law and we are following U.S. law and enforcing it. And Kamala Harris was like, all right, but the effect of that is that you are separating children from their families. So it's like this constant back and forth of clearly the Trump administration wants to make sure that that message about the legality of crossing the border is the forefront of this and not the effect, which is separating families. Well, and I think one important piece of context to like what is going on here is that there is a lot of violence happening in North Central America right now. So there was actually just on May 22nd, so a little – about two weeks ago, the um, UN Refugee Agency, they put out a report showing that asylum seekers from North of Central America – so this is mostly El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras – the numbers were up 58 percent from last year – and 16 times more people seeking asylum at the end of 2017 than were in 2011. So it, there is something going on that appears to be driving people, not just seeking um, refuge in the United States, but you know they list countries, Belize, Mexico, increasingly in Costa Rica and Panama, that you are seeing almost in a little way reminiscent of 2014, kind of this growing flood. And, and I mean, it is a big deal to try and come all the way to the United States. Usually you aren't 
doing that on a whim. We're talking about Bill coming from countries even further south than Mexico, coming up through Mexico to try and make it through the American border. So there is a refugee crisis kind of brewing that the U.N. has gotten worried about. One thing I was curious about, Tarek, I know you've been talking to some people about this, is I've seen from some Republicans and from the Trump administration, they keep making references to a supposed law that um, requires these separations. I asked people, they said the law doesn't exist. But I'm curious, like, what's going on there and, like, how that's factoring into this whole debate, this idea. And I think that the Trump phrased it in some way on Twitter, saying, like, oh, well, this is just the Democrats' terrible law requiring us to do this. Right. And so I was on a White House call and Stephen Miller was going on and on. The only reason we have to separate families is because of laws that Democrats are forcing to be in place. And, like, that's just, like, not the case. <laughs> they are not legally obligated to separate families. They just are operating on this assumption that there are all these traffickers taking children and posing as asylum seekers. And these White House officials are telling this story of, oh, they know the magic words and how to get in because they can just they've learned how to trick the system. And that is the message that they're putting out there. But it's not like, yes, there are court rulings under the Obama era that restricted how families could be in detention. So like you mentioned earlier, um, but in terms of like a legal obligation to separate families, that's not the case. Right. But this has been a tricky sort of lacuna in international law, I think, for decades, right? Which is that like in in legal theory, there's this like incredibly sharp divergence between a refugee and like a wannabe immigrant, right? And like countries under international law are entitled to infinite discretion with regard to wannabe immigrants, you know, and you like let in who you want under what terms you want and you like, you know, have like guns and barbed wire and you keep out everybody else. Um, but then if there's a refugee, there's like all these special obligations that apply and, you know, people have rights to asylum claims and, you know, there's an obligation on the part of whichever country they arrive in to house them and take care of them and all kinds of post-World War II treaties and settlements and, and things like that. And trouble arises, you know, whether it's in the U.S. border or in Italy uh, right now has been a big issue in their politics or in Greece, is that like in the real world, it's like not that hard and fast, right? Like there is reason that people who live in Latin America want to come to the United States. There has been for decades, there's been some flow of unauthorized immigration into the United States for a long, long time. And the Trump administration's view that the quality of the treatment that asylum seekers receive in the United States may plausibly impact the number of people who come seeking asylum is like not crazy, right? In like the legal construct, it's like, look, there are the refugees who are fleeing for their lives. And so like nothing you do, you know, impacts them or changes their incentives. So they're like, they're entitled to good treatment. And then there's like the immigrants who are entitled to, to nothing. But like reality is murkier and countries all know it's murkier. And that's why this policy like it's why it makes sense, right? Like their their view is that if word gets back to Honduras that like the evil monster Donald Trump is separating children from their mothers and it's a horrible disaster that like then people won't come, right? Either they'll right. stay home or they'll go to Costa Rica or like whatever, but like they won't come to the United States. And like that's what Trump and Kelly and Nielsen, like that's what they want. They want people to not come here. So they are treating people as harshly as they think they can within the bounds of the law. And then they're like tweeting some nonsense about Democrats. Right. I mean, that was the New York Times reported that that was the directive was that this is a measure of deterrence for other asylum seekers or people thinking about it being asylum seekers um, in a Senate hearing. Kirsten Nielsen from DHS denied that, that was the directive that she re received, that it was not a method of deterrence and just an enforcement of U.S. law. Because in theory, you you know, in theory, it's illegal to uh, to punish right. refugees to deter future asylum seekers. Right. Yes. But clearly that's what they're doing. Yeah. But I, I think like the place where it becomes unclear, like where this all happens is you have this really big increase in people 
claiming to be refugees from these three countries, from kind of northern Central America. Some of them are going to Costa Rica. They're going to other places. But, you know, we're talking about, according to U.N. numbers, a 16-fold increase since 2001 in the number of people who are leaving this area to seek refuge elsewhere. And again, like, not just coming to the United States, coming to a number of countries. It seems unclear how it plays out, you know, when you have this massive wave of people, yeah, like some of them are going to go somewhere else. But like, what happens? Like, is it enough of a deterrent when you have this many people? Or does the pure volume like still lead to a number of people ending up in this situation? And what does that mean for, you know, this infrastructure that has been built to manage this population? One of the things you know, right now, most undocumented minors are not getting representation in court. Um, they, unlike U.S. citizens, there is no mandate that they receive at public defender. There are a number of nonprofits that do this work that try to find these kids and make sure they have representation because they, you know, unsurprisingly, a toddler or like a five-year-old or even a 15-year-old is going to do a lot better if they are defended in court by an attorney. But if you have, you know, more kids coming into this system unaccompanied, you know, that's a huge stress on the system that already is missing most of those unaccompanied minors, um, you know, because they don't have the bandwidth to handle all them. And I don't think we know right now, you know, we have on the one hand, it's kind of policy that it seems like even if it is not meant to deter refugees seeking um, asylum in the United States would likely deter refugees seeking asylum in the United States, but you also have this big, big wave of refugees. Like, I don't know where those two things meet in the United States, but it is a worry for the people who are defending these kids what might happen, you know, as you are, you know, creating a larger population of unaccompanied minors by specifically separating them from their parents. I was just going to say it's such a clear extension of the rhetoric that Trump has used from the very beginning. I mean, during the campaign, he was very clear about sowing fear about refugee communities, whether they were coming from Syria or coming from Central America. And this is this policy is just such a, like a from the travel ban that was enacted that capped refugees or I mean ended refugees and then capped it to now, it's it's a very kind of natural progression of that worldview. Yeah, and this to me is what's striking. I mean, I think any administration would have some uh difficulty in knowing how to address this situation and have some reluctance to be as welcoming as advocates would like them to be. But Trump views this through a pure lens of threat and bad faith, right? Like he sees, I mean, first it was Syrian refugees and like in his mind, refugees from Syria is just a means for terrorists to infiltrate the United States. He sees refugees from Central America. In his mind, it is just a means for MS-13 to infiltrate the United States. Or a gateway for terrorists from the Middle East, which he also said. He He gives no credence to the idea that like actual conditions in Central America are an important factor in this or that people have real problems in their lives. Suffering does not. Right. Because I think a normal, non-crazy universe, you would be struggling with these asylum seekers and the volume of the arrivals. And I don't know exactly where you would land on it. But part of what you would be trying to do is address the situation at home. Right. Like you would be saying, what can the United States do to improve conditions in northern Central America? You would be recognizing that the United States is very tied in with Latin America. Right. And that, you know, trade policy, economic development, uh, the, the, the military, the State Department. You know, I don't think that we can like wave a wand and like fix everything that's wrong with Honduras. But the United States has a lot of influence on the direction of these things, also on, you know, conditions in Costa Rica and Mexico, right, the countries that are even closer to it. And like there could be, you know, like big high level summits on this. Like there could be a lot of work going into trying to make people feel secure and prosperous at home, trying to find ways to get you know, some number of people who we are going to help. You could you could be doing something, but right? Matt, America first. Yes, <laughs> but I mean, it's like it's not even about like America first or not, right? It's it's the like inherent contentiousness of everything Trump 
does where we're like we, we're putting tariffs on you know Mexican steel and and stuff like that like there's no view that the world could have some like mutually beneficial collaborating working on things that you know these these families probably their first choice in life is not to like go through a dangerous smuggling route through Mexico, show up at the U.S. Yeah, but border. If, you're, if your view is that these people are essentially faking asylum, like right. then there's not a problem to solve in northern Central America. Like I understand what you're saying, yeah. but if you're coming at this from the view like, well, these people just want to come into the United States. Like, and this wreak is, havoc, like yeah. murders and Right, then dealing. this isn't even like a problem to be solved in the first place, no, no matter what the U.S. No, no, no. I mean, I, I get it. But I mean, it's like this is the the problem that America will endlessly be saddled with, right? Because I do think that the, the advocates sometimes get too blasé about the fact that, like, there's a reason why people don't want just, like, an infinite flow of, of Central American migrants. But at the same time that it's like Trump, if you view everything in life through this lens of racist paranoia— then, like, you can't actually address the issue, right? Like, we keep hearing, like, Trump will, like, yell at Secretary Nielsen in meetings that, like, this policy of, like, being mean to people and, like, treating children cruelly is not, like, solving the problem of unauthorized immigration. And it's, like, it's because it's a it's a bad idea. Like, this is not – he is misunderstanding the origins of the situation and is not actually trying to solve it at all. I'm shocked. It's bad. So I want to hear – as long as we're talking about immigration today, I want to hear, like, what's up on the Let, Hill. Yeah, let's take, let's take another break because there's, there's big congressional, congressional action, maybe. <laughs> maybe not. HBO has a new drama series uh, out. It's called Succession. Uh, they, they, they're sponsoring our show. Um, so this show, it's from Adam McKay, who is the director of The Big Short, and from uh, Jesse Armstrong, who was the writer of In the Loop. Uh, these are two great movies that, that touch on questions of, of business and, and politics. They're really great films, both of them. And, and if you haven't seen them, you should. And if you have seen them, you'll know how exciting it is that they're collaborating together. Uh, so what they're working on, Succession, it's the story of the Roy family. They're the owners of one of the biggest media companies in the world. Uh, Then when family patriarch Logan decides he's not quite ready to retire, his adult children fight to figure out where they fit in. It's set in the boardrooms and penthouse apartments of New York City. Succession explores power, politics, money, and family in the cutthroat corporate world. Succession airs Sunday nights at 10 p.m. and it's only on HBO. Check it out. Vox.com has just launched a new show on Netflix. It's called Explained, and every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. The episode that we saw this week is about K-pop. This is like Korean popular music. It's all about how K-pop became a global phenomenon. It's not like the most weedsy topic, but it is fascinating. It's really interesting, like where this sound comes from and the sort of different culture of music making and music production around K-pop groups. They call them idol groups in Korea. And it's just like a fascinating difference from how I think Americans think about bands and, and think about music. And it really helps explain like how they become so successful, not just in Korea, but globally. And it's also just like a really funny, really stylish, really great show. I've always loved Vox's videos on YouTube, on Netflix. It's just like everything is bigger. Everything is even better. It's really cool. It's really interesting. Go find it on Netflix. Search for Vox or you can go straight to Netflix.com slash explained. Okay. So Tara, you're our, you're a person who's up in Congress. You're You're in touch with members of the different party. And like, to be clear, since we are kind of trying to keep all our stories straight, you know, we've talked about the so-called missing children that are not missing. We've talked about the separation policy. And now we want to talk about other immigration policies, I think, related to DACA that are starting. Right. To get yes. kicked around a little um, bit on the well, I mean, DACA, DACA is making a comeback, yes. maybe. So third right. bucket of immigration stuff we're yeah. going to talk about now. I mean, we have, to go back to the first two buckets very briefly— <laughs> We are seeing some Democratic messaging bills around the separated children policies that would kind of address some of the issues that you were bringing up earlier about making sure that families can be involved in court proceedings and involve children and all of that. But the main immigration debate going on in Congress does not have to do with this as much, and it has to do with DACA, which is a debate we have had on and off for the past year, ever since Trump last year announced that he was going to be sunsetting the program. Um, And obviously, last February, there was like this big excitement about how the Senate was going to have this open debate about immigration and they were going to solve DACA. And 
every like they would hold hands and sing kumbaya <laughs> and <laughs> in the surprise to no one that did not happen and they addressed it not at all and um and the senate has been very quiet about it and now it's midterm season and all these super vulnerable republicans in districts in california are like wait we need to do something about immigration or at least pretend like we're doing something about immigration and so in the house uh we're seeing this push by jeff denham who's this California Republican who's among the most vulnerable Republicans in 2018 and has a 40% Hispanic constituency. Um, and he is trying to force Paul Ryan's hand to have an immigration debate on the House floor. And because Paul Ryan has been very reluctant to have an immigration debate because it shows all the discord within the Republican Party around immigration. And he's like largely tried to silence this conversation. He's put all these caveats around it. Like we have to have like a huge majority of the Republican caucus supporting one bill and Trump has to be able to sign it. All the, like all these conditions that make it very hard to have a bipartisan immigration bill go through. Um, they have a discharge petition Going And there are 213 signatories on the discharge petition. They need 218 to force a vote. So we're very, very close. I think they need two more Republicans and there are three uh, Democrats holding out so far. It's not like exactly clear to me if those Democrat holdouts will be flipped. I assume that the pressure will be on if it's only three Democrats that are preventing this immigration debate. And the idea is that If this discharge petition goes through, there would be four immigration bills that would get a vote on the House floor. One would be this like ultra conservative good lat bill, which Dara has written a lot about. And it basically goes far past the scope of DACA. It talks about enforcement. It's like E-Verify. It's all these policies that are like the kitchen sink of conservative immigration policy. And it has the support of like the Freedom Caucus side of Congress. Um, and is unlikely to pass Congress, even the House, even with just Republican support. Then there is like a more moderate Republican proposal. There is like a just Democratic proposal, like a Clean Dream Act. And then the last is up to Paul Ryan's discretion. So there is still kind of in negotiations to find some kind of moderate Republican bill that Paul Ryan will sign on to and Democrats will okay. vote for. So now let's talk about congressional procedure a bit. Right? <laughs> No, no, no. Because this favorite, is we got to do some. This is this procedure. is important um, because we we normally talk about congressional procedure in the Senate where they have a lot of procedural wrangling, uh, but in the House, the way things go normally is that bills come to the floor if the Speaker of the House wants them to come to the floor, and that frequently means. I mean, an important nuance here is that like while you need a majority vote for a bill to pass, a bill can have majority support but not make it to the floor, right? And it's in fact become typical. It was different in the 70s and in early 80s, right? In that when when Tip O'Neill was speaker and Ronald Reagan was president, uh, it would often be the case that legislation would pass with a coalition of Republicans and a handful of conservative Democrats. But in the modern House, the majority doesn't get doesn't get rolled like that. This has become associated with Dennis Hastert, but it, it actually predates him. Right. That normally only bills that the majority party supports get a vote, right? So this has been relevant on immigration a lot going back. Uh, it, it was very relevant to the, the old Gang of Eight bill, which right. um, it passed the Senate with a, a bipartisan majority. But the bipartisan majority was like almost all the Democrats plus some Republicans. And that same vote count held in the House, like if it had gone to the floor, it seems like it would have passed, but it didn't go to the floor because it was only supported by a minority of Republicans. But there's like two loopholes to the rule. One loophole is the speaker can bring whatever he wants to the floor if he wants to. And this sometimes happens. Like Boehner, particularly at the end of his speakership, would like deliberately put stuff on the floor that most Republicans would vote against in order to avoid shutdowns. And the other is the discharge position. Right. So Boehner famously in 2013 refused to bring up the Gang of Eight bill because he said there wasn't a majority of the majority support for it. And so that's Paul Ryan is using that same excuse. And now – 
there are Republicans saying, well, we need to do something about this. So we will get 218 votes to tell you that we want to do something about this and we will force a vote on the House. Right. And this is essentially this is what a discharge. Yeah, that is what a discharge is. is. But the discharge position, it's 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 one of these weird um, norms cases, right? Where like in theory, like Republicans who supported the Gang of Eight bill could have signed a discharge petition right. and forced it to the floor, but they didn't. There is a there is a strong norm in the U.S. House of Representatives against signing a discharge petition. Right. So, like, it is really common for members of the majority party, like more vulnerable members, to co-sponsor or say nice things about a minority party bill and say like, oh, yeah, I support that. I'm in the Climate Solutions Caucus or, or whatever, but to not actually sign discharge petitions. Right. Like this is a very clear bucking leadership. Hey, we want to do this and you're not listening to us kind of a. Yeah. Do you even know, effort. Matt, maybe from your congressional trivia? I don't know if you know, like the last time we saw something like actually pass through the discharge di- petition I process? believe the last time the discharge petition process led to the successful enactment of a bill was in the um, – what was the McCain-Feingold yeah. uh, campaign finance reform bill? That The House bill uh, had some different name. Uh, but there, there was a discharge petition. This is like years ago though. It, it was a long time ago. And I forget whether the petition actually got a majority or if it was just that uh, – There were enough. They, they, like, they, they relented yeah. at a certain point. I mean what often happens with discharge petitions because leadership really – I mean – it does. It's not a good look for leadership. Mm-hmm. It kind of seems like they're losing grasp of their own yes. conference. So if a discharge petition is gaining a lot of steam, what happens is that leadership is like, all right, I'm taking back control of this. I will put a vote on this or I will negotiate behind closed doors. So Paul Ryan is sort of doing that right now. He is really kind of scrambling to talk with all the different parties in the past couple of weeks to create some kind of compromise immigration bill and not have all four bills come out on the floor because he knows – if all four bills come on the floor, the outcome is likely going to be much more moderate than he is going to be happy with. But then there's a nuance like within the nuances here, right, which is that in the Gang of 13 case, a bill had passed the Senate. Obama was strongly supporting it. So had there been a discharge petition and then the bill came to the floor, it would have passed and it would have been signed into law. Right. In this case – there was some bipartisan proposals in the Senate. Right. None of them had the 60 votes needed to overcome a filibuster. None of them – it's not really clear where the Trump administration is on any of this. But Donald Trump seems to be an immigration hardliner as per our earlier discussions. Right. So the stakes in this House, Michigas, are a little hazy to me, right? Like the discharge petition could – like anything could pass the House – and like, who cares? Like, right. I don't. So, like, what what's going on? Like, like, why do Republicans like? Why not just give Jeff Denham the vote he wants? <laughs> I mean, I think. Well, yeah, you could just Poor give Jeff, Jeff Denham <laughs> exactly. And I, I mean, I think a lot of that is happening now. But I, I just. Paul Ryan was so concerned about, or my understanding was that he's so concerned about showing this like open discord in the party. And in the Senate as well, that like he didn't want this to have to happen again. And of course, now it's just happening again. But like he has a point that like Trump likely won't sign a Dream Act. I mean, I guess he has a point, but the point seems like on the other side. It's like, <laughs> why not just let people vote on the bill? Because, you know, like Boehner was like, for better or worse, John Boehner's Sticking to the Hastert rule was like the only thing standing between the United States and this like evil amnesty bill that would have increased wages, economic growth, reduced crime and like solved all these problems that have been plaguing us. Like Paul Ryan right now is declining to hold a vote on a bill that maybe will or won't pass the House and that probably Trump could just veto. And also Paul Ryan, I mean, you can you can find it on the internet. But after Donald Trump was elected president, right, there was like a, a Paul Ryan town hall where like a, a dreamer mom was like weeping about how she doesn't want Donald Trump to ruin her life. And Paul Ryan, he promised her that this wasn't going to happen, right? Like he used to be on Jeff Denham's side of this Oh, issue. yeah. I mean, Paul Ryan's history with immigration policy is very muddled. I mean, he's 
gone back and forth. He, I, and he's quitting. Yeah, and he's quitting. I, he's just terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. I don't care for Paul Ryan. What? Whoa. Um, we have to get Ezra in here and <laughs> defend Paul Ryan's honor. Look, I, I mean, I don't have the answer here of what's going on in Paul Ryan's head, but I, I do see the gamble with Trump of. Well, maybe we will pass something moderate and then he will sign it. Or I, I don't know. I mean, like, that's the bet that Nancy Pelosi was making last year when she went to Paul Ryan and was like, hey, why don't we just vote on everything and see what happens? And he was like, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that, knowing that there's the the chance that Trump might just sign whatever. Right. And back then, the story from Ryan Apologist was like, oh, no, no, no. Paul Ryan has no choice but to help ruin the lives of hundreds of thousands of innocent young people because otherwise he would, quote unquote, risk his speakership, which is fucking crazy bullshit. But like, OK, so that was the excuse. Or risk Paul, the Paul, house. Pa- Paul Ryan ruining lives to save his job. He's fucking quit his job. Right. Like, like, what is he doing? Like, why? How fanatical is Paul Ryan about this? And like, why? Like, it's it's crazy. Like, like, what is happening? I mean, listen, like I'm I'm on the hill. I'm a lot less than Tara. But I, I could see, you know, one of the cases being like not wanting like a messy fight over immigration going into the midterms. Like, yes, like it helps Jeff Denham, but you have presumably he cares, you know, even though he is not going to be speaker next year, he presumably has like some feelings about the Republicans remaining in control of the House where he is outgoing speaker and sees more of a downside to, like, a debate that has, like, a lot of different factions that really shows a lot of these cracks in the Republican Party that we've seen in, like, all these other debates around health care, around other topics. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I'm not in Paul Ryan's head, but maybe that's it. If they are operating on the premise that immigration was so crucial to Trump getting elected, then I could see a world in which the House passes a moderate immigration bill Maybe the Senate passes the same bill uh-huh. and something gets <laughs> to Trump's desk. It could be not great for the conservative Trump supporting representatives to then say, well, the thing we did on Trump's biggest campaign promise was not at all close to what Trump said we would do. But the vulnerable members want to do this, right? Right. But the, I mean, the vulnerable members are from districts that are don't like Trump and don't right. like this immigration policy. I it, like that's the I mean that's the that's the the big problem with Trump and the Republican Party shows these divisions. Hmm. What's up with the Freedom Caucus on this? So they are desperately in want of a vote on the Goodlatte bill, which is that conservative immigration policy. And they have wanted this for a very long time. And Paul Ryan has promised them to whip the votes for this back when they were threatening to shut down the government over the the budget deal. I think that was in January or February. And they when you talk to them, they're like, it was the weakest, lamest whip operation we have ever seen. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to leadership, they're like, nobody wants to vote for the Goodlatte bill. <laughs> and so there's this like constant back and forth. And we have not obviously seen a vote on the Goodlatte bill. So they're trying to now use this leverage of the last um, before the farm bill came up on the vote. You saw this weird, like odd marriage of the Jeff Denims of Congress and the Mark Meadows of Congress, like teaming up against Paul Ryan to force votes on like completely different pieces of immigration legislation and like say that, oh, yeah, we're on the same side, even though they have wildly different views. So, on immigration. so what's what's the highlights of the good luck bill? It so it will extend DACA. It does not offer a path to citizenship. OK, um, so it's just an extension of DACA. It has the border wall. Ah. Um, it has a lot of like interior enforcement funding. Um, and so it like really go. And then it has the E-Verify okay. measure. So it, it really goes past the four pillars of Trump's immigration uh-huh. policy. It like hits all those and goes past them. And Republicans in the House don't even have unified support. Right. So, so this is a bill that has... Uh some dissension in Republican ranks, I guess prim- probably primarily because of the interior enforcement and employer right. type stuff that, that 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 that's involved. And so I guess they, they don't want to bring that up. But on the other hand, like like what else are they going to do? 
I mean, I like the more I talk, I mean, even conservatives now at this point are just telling me like, why don't we just have DACA and a border wall and just like throw a little bit of money towards like some more DHS beds, like detention beds and like just get it over with. Like it's reached this point of everyone is just exasperated and like, I don't know. So that's kind of where the conversation is now. Supposedly, as I heard yesterday, the conversations with moderate Republicans in leadership are going well. Uh-huh. I've heard this quite often, and it does not actually end up going well. But that's where we are on recess. And um, presumably, I mean, everyone kind of concedes that this this discharge petition is likely going to get all of the signatories if nothing happens very soon. So I think in the week that they come back in the following couple of weeks – um, we're going to see some action on this. So we're talking like next month or so. Right. So the timeline. discharge petition would, um, if it passes, would likely have a vote in the end of June. And if they miss that, it would be the end of July. Those are the two kind of timelines this seems like, that they've set. This seems like the sort of hidden problem with Republicans having just sort of like given up on having a policy agenda is that – you know, at a certain point, it's kind of like like little children, right? It's like if you if you give the backbenchers nothing to do, they start coming up with discharge petitions and, and yeah. like various other. I mean, when you can't tell people like no, like the floor time right. is all being eaten up by like our important plan. To- yeah, exactly. I mean, they saw so like their major piece of legislation this year was the farm bill, and that went down on the floor and now they're like, well, we have nothing else but to do. But you see this happen. I mean, this is happening in the Senate too. Like Bill Cassidy is leading his like effort to revive oh, a healthcare push <laughs> on the Senate side, which seems like a terrible idea for, right. you know, uh, uh, per- you know, not even to get into the policies, but going into a midterm election. Another good reason to give Jeff Denham what he wants. Right. I mean, Paul Ryan should think, like, does he want an embarrassing floor fight about immigration or does he want an embarrassing floor fight about health care? I mean, like, we literally, the last, like, major drama in the House was over the chaplain. Like, clearly they don't have a <laughs> lot of things to do. I just, um, I mean, Jeff Denham is so explicit in his intentions here. He says that it needs to happen before the midterms. So there's no kind of shroud of mystery over why why he's pushing this. And with that, there should also be no shroud of mystery about how to join the Weeds Facebook group. Uh, we can continue the discussion on this and many other uh, important and, uh, and influential topics. Uh, you know, if you have any uh, ideas, advice for Jeff Denham, how to get... <laughs> or Paul Ryan. Or Paul Ryan. Well, Paul Ryan's retiring. He should, he should just yeah, do the right thing. advice for his retirement. Um, yeah. Sure. His for, yeah, wh- what should he do with his retirement? Where, what, where can he visit? John Boehner seems to be having a good time. Yeah, John Boehner. John Boehner's a marijuana lobbyist. Uh, he's, he's partying all the time. It sounds great. Anyway, no, seriously. Um, so thanks, Tara, for coming on and enlightening us about all this. Uh, thanks uh, to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. We will be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.